The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord, speak to our hearts and lives through these readings of Scripture and through these words offered. Give us wisdom to separate wheat from chaff, Lord. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. What is it about mountaintops? We have an Old Testament reading on Mount Sinai. We have a New Testament reading on Mount of Transfiguration. What is it about mountaintops? Is it getting away from the everyday, getting away from overly familiar routines, leaving the city, the town behind, and having time to reflect and think? It's back to nature, perhaps, but it's more, I think. Maybe because we see the long view and the 360-degree view from the tops helps us to consider our personal lives with our own long view. I remember visiting our daughter Jean when she was living in Charlottesville, Virginia, and making our way up to the, uh, to the Skyline Parkway and stopped at a view overlooking the Shenandoah Valley. Wow, goodness, the expanse the beauty, the grandeur. But these mountaintop journeys are more, I believe, also than simply expanding our minds. Mountaintops, isolated settings, can be places where we feel closer to God. Spiritually, big things happen on mountains. People speak about mountaintop experiences within the frame of their spiritual lives. And the Bible is full of mountaintop experiences. Moses, having encountered God there at the top, came down from Mount Sinai with a radiant glow on his face and the tablets of the law. Elijah 
encounters God on a mountain and hears God in the silence. And Jesus, with Peter and James and John, experienced a stunning moment of revelation, God's glorious display of power. We also sometimes can come back with a radiant glow on our face. We've been to the mountains. We at least have a smile and sometimes more. People will speak of their own mountaintop experience and meaning something transformative happened while they were up there. I returned last night from the Christian Men's Conference at Camp St. Christopher. 280 men seeking a mountaintop experience at sea level. 20 men from Prince George seeking something more richer, deeper of the Lord. I hope, I believe many of us, of us found that there too. This particular trip by Jesus and three companions brings into focus on first take two mountain peak experiences events. In terms of spiritual impact, two Himalayan mountaintops from the Bible. There's Mount Sinai somewhere in the Sinai Desert, far south between Israel and Egypt. And there's the, the Mount of Transfiguration. We're not sure where it is. There's an 1,886 foot dome jutting out of the plains in central Israel. And there is a church built on top of that dome. Uh, the mountain is called Mount Tabor. And the church is called, guess what? Church of the Transfiguration. Um, could be the place. But Jesus went up a high mountain to pray, this reading told us this morning. And perhaps the high mountain is in the far north of Israel, Mount Hermon. Not 1,800 feet, but 9,232 feet. All the tourists go to Tabor because it's fairly easy, easily accessible. But it seems more likely that Jesus went off to a truly remote place, really far north for him, an unusual trek out of the Galilee area, and went up on Mount Hermon with his friends. Sinai, we have the giving of the law. Alleluia, the glory of the law given. The law that prescribes for us what we must do to get right or be right with God, the God of the highest moral standards, the God that unfolds for us his expectations of his people, the law that still stands today as God's moral compass in spite of what our culture says or believes. Sometimes it's a journey, but it's kind of fun to read Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Psalter by far. 176 verses. We only had nine verses from Psalm 99 this morning. 176 verses. And the entire psalm is on the beauty of God's law. A few samples. The first one will be very familiar to you from verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Or verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge for I believe in your commandments. I went astray, but now I keep your word. 
You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes, your law. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts, your law. But I delight in your law. Over and over, the repetition, the flow of the, the love of the law expressed in Psalm 119. At Sinai, we have the giving of the law, the glory of the law. Hermon, we have the giving of the Son, the glory of the Son. The Father says, this is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What better advice could a man or woman ever get? Listen to him, to my Son. The glory of Messiah shining forth Jesus, the man, as a shining forth of the glory of God. Paul saw that glory. He writes in various places, but in Colossians, he writes like this, writes in various places about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know, really, if you want a story with a happy ending, it should end right here. Jesus came. He showed us God in human form. What would, what would God be like if he was one of us? He taught men and women how to live, how to behave. He modeled, he taught, he healed, he cast out demons demonstrating his authority and power. He sent his followers out two by two, first a group of 12 and then a group of 72. With the, you get the picture that this is supposed to multiply and expand and told them to do likewise, to teach and preach and heal and cast out demons. He gave them the, uh, not only the authority, but anointed them with the Spirit to enable this. It wasn't under their own power, but, but some mysterious Holy Spirit, Jesus power, he gave to them. And they came back radiant because they were so effective in healing and casting out demons. The story should end right here with Jesus transfigured, his face shining as the sun, his clothes white as the light, Moses and Elijah coming alongside him on each side, perhaps. The triumvirate of the faithful servants of God. The representative prophet, priest, and king. But, in our story, there is a third mountain Jesus will choose to ascend. But this time alone, abandoned by his close friends. Not even Peter or James or John will be nearby. Actually, it was only a hill outside the walls of Jerusalem. This is the hill known as Golgotha. We'll hear of his resolute journey over the next 40 days, building to a climax in Holy Week. The journey from Transfigure Mount down into the valley, to Jerusalem, up another hill. Sinai gave us the law. The Mount of Transfiguration gave us the sun. 
at Golgotha, the Son gives us himself for us and our salvation, we'll say in the creed in a minute. There is that hugely momentous moment in William Shakespeare's play, Richard II, when King Richard is about to be deposed. He has abused his royal authority. He's been incompetent as a ruler. Now he is losing his crown to the rebels led by Henry Bolingbroke. Henry himself will soon be crowned king, but Richard must first abdicate. In the play, Richard is on the famous Shakespearean stage in London, and Richard is up on the balcony, the same balcony where Juliet would have been for another Shakespearean play. Richard is up on the balcony, lording it over his kingdom from there, looking down upon Henry and the rebels. He realizes his time is up. And there is these great lines. I imagine he's coming down a spiral staircase saying, down, down, I come. Coming down off his throne, obviously, symbolically, like glistering Phython, a mythical figure, wanting the manage of unruly jades, lacking the ability to control wild horses. His kingdom has gone out of control, wanting the manage of unruly wild horses. In the base court, he can't imagine king. He'll be in the base court. In the base court, base court, where kings grow base, to come at traitors' calls and do them grace. In the base court, come down, down court. His own court is down, down king. And there he is at the bottom of the steps on the stage. And Richard is led away to be executed. It's not a perfect parallel, but here is Jesus in all his transfiguration glory, not in competence, but considered a threat and hated by the leaders of his day. There are rebels down there in the base court waiting for him. And Jesus, down, down, he chooses to come to the base court. No three tents built for privilege and protection for him. Now he will set his face for Jerusalem. He will be summoned, if you will, by traitors. Traitors who will meet him at the world's center, Jerusalem. Betrayers who ultimately will do their worst with him. There are so many pivotal moments in that story. We will hear it as we make our way through Lent. But one that often comes to my mind as we begin this journey is... Jesus with the twelve, the last supper, the washing of feet, Jesus doing all things well. With him I am well pleased, his father says. And Jesus says to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. 
And as scripture and uh, great writing can have tremendous poetic power, the last four words of that verse, Judas immediately went out and it was night. The darkness descends upon Jesus as well. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The glory of Jesus, Mount of Transfiguration, or Golgotha, his fullest glory. Again, there are so many hymns that speak to this. They come, the hymns come from hearts that have seen the glory of the one and only Son and seen his offering and been moved in such a way that people write poetry, people weep, people write hymns. One of my favorites is Ah, Holy Jesus. And it comes to mind this morning, who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. Lo, the good shepherd for the sheep is offered. The slave hath sinned, and the son hath suffered. For our atonement, while we nothing heeded, God interceded. For me, kind Jesus, was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow, and thy life's oblation, thy death of anguish, and thy bitter passion for my salvation. Last verse, therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee, and will ever pray thee, Think on thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving. This year, like Peter and James and John, wanting to linger on the Mount of Transfiguration, I encourage you, urge you, and I speak to my own self as well, to linger at Golgotha. Consider your life. Consider what Jesus has for you. Consider whether changes in your life would be appropriate. Ask Jesus what needs to change or grow or what needs to be abandoned in your life. What can happen? Well, in a sense, our own transfiguration we grow another step into a beautiful likeness of Jesus. We become more whole, shalom. We become more like what God intended us to be from time's beginning, before the wounds and the hurts and the travails of life undermined us. This is what Paul means when he writes in his second letter to the Corinthians. And we all, with unveiled face, we can see, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Ash Wednesday arrives this week. Many Christians have lost this launch pad. Our culture has certainly lost this launch pad. This launch pad for using Lent as an opportunity for spiritual house cleaning and even house renovation. This is a mission before us. This is an opportunity. Let's do it. Let us begin. Amen.